We are. We are. We are cultivate. 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 We are cultivate. Hello and welcome to Ye Old Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I'm your host, Lindsay Valenti, and with me is my sister and co-host, Maddie Stengel. Hello. Hi. How's it going? It's going. Yeah. Another, another week of our atypical recording day. Mm-hmm. But... We didn't want to record on a birthday weekend. Yes. So the day we are recording this is the day before Maddie's birthday. Although mm-hmm. when this comes out, it'll be after her birthday. True. So happy belated birthday, I guess. <laughs> From <laughs> the Happy future. early belated birthday. Yeah. From the future. <laughs> happy belated birthday from the future. <laughs> Smooch, no, this is not about you. Excuse me. It's not about you. No, this is not about you. This is not your podcast. Okay, all right, go. Everybody down. Oh my god, that worked. All three of them laid down. <laughs> nice. I'll never have as much power ever again. They were sleeping so nicely every time she realizes that i'm either on the phone or in a meeting she's like now it's my time to shine Mm -hmm. not today smooch not Not today looking for more content you can find us online at yieldcrimepodcast.com if you'd like to see pictures from this week's episode not to mention bonus content and funny memes make sure to follow us on twitter at yieldcrimepod and on Facebook and Instagram at Yield Crime Podcast. On TikTok, of course you are. Follow us at Yield Crime Podcast. We are continuing birthday month with topics as picked by Madison. That I've also forgotten. So I will be <laughs> the the typical amount of surprised. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This one, I went down a rabbit hole. Like, we probably could have recorded two days ago if I hadn't fallen down this rabbit hole. That being said, today, we're going to talk about when walking became illegal. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. That's kind of a misleading title, Mm -hmm. but we'll get into it. Awesome. Information was pulled from the following sources, a 2021 BBC Sports article by Zaria Gorbett, 2017 Atlas Obscura article by Linda Rodriguez McRobbie, 2016 Atlas Obscura article by Jesse Guy Ryan, 2014 NPR News article by NPR staff, 2014 Ravishly article by Jane Jones, and not one, not two, but seven wikipedia pages nice that was the rabbit hole wikipedia that was the rabbit hole yeah and links to all of these articles will be included in the show notes all right gambling 
has come in many forms over many different events in history, from the gladiator pits in Rome to chariot races in ancient Egypt to, of all things, competitive walking. Oh my god, I'm so here for this. Pedestrianism, or race walking, gained traction, if you will, in the 18th and early 19th centuries in Britain and Ireland. Of course it did. And became a popular spectator sport. Oh my god, just a bunch of people watching people walk? (laughs) Yes. Awesome. It first started back in the 17th century, when footmen were pitted against one another by aristocrats to see who could maintain the speed of their master's carriages or run errands against one another. I hate that. Yeah. Of course it has to start in, like, the worst way possible. Right. Well, I suppose you could, like, it's kind of a tale as old as time with gladiators, you know, slaves. Killing each other for entertainment. Yep. Yeah. My footman is faster than your footman. Care to bet? (laughs) What would you like to wager? I'll wager my second best horse. (laughs) Hate it. In a book that was published in 1813 by Walter Tom, he noted an example. Quote, In September this year, 1812, Jonathan Waring, a Lancashire pedestrian, performed 136 miles in 34 hours for a wager of 100 guineas. How much is that? I forgot to do the conversion. A guinea is worth a 1.05 pounds. So, which today would be 5,200 pounds. I feel like that's not a lot for the amount of miles... Or, like, the distance he walked. But I suppose in a day and a half. That's a good wage for a day and a half. Yeah, that's like several years worth of wages. Yeah. He started from London to go to Northampton and return. He went the first 55 miles in 12 hours and half the distance in 14 hours and a half. After resting an hour and a half, he started on his return and accomplished the whole distance in three minutes less than the time allowed. He was excessively fatigued, end quote. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. He didn't let himself sleep, really, or rest at all in a day and a half. No. That's insane. Yeah. One of the first and most notable long-distance walkers was a man known as Foster Powell. Foster was born in Horsforth in 1734 and moved to London in 1762 at the age of 28 to work as a lawyer's clerk. Two years later, in 1764, he made a wager that he could walk 50 miles, or 80.5 kilometers, in seven hours. Hmm. Foster succeeded by walking the distance on Bath Road, making him a national celebrity. Foster's longest walk was in 1773 at the age of 39, when he walked 400 miles, or 644 kilometers, from London to York and back. And his second longest walk was in 1788 at the age of 54, when he walked 100 miles, or 161 kilometers, in 21 hours and 35 
minutes. Jeez. That's still 100 miles short of that one song, though. Yeah. Now I can't fathom that song. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Putting everything into context, I'm like, you know. Yeah. Foster didn't walk competitively as a full-time job, but as more of a hobby, mainly because there wasn't much money in it, or at least there wasn't at this time. Mm-hmm. He died on April 14, 1793, at the age of 59, practically penniless, and was later buried at St. Paul's Cathedral Churchyard in London. Sad. One of the most famous pedestrians was a man named Captain Robert Barclay Alardis of Stonehaven, who was given the nickname of the Celebrated Pedestrian. The Celebrated Pedestrian. Yes. How formal. Born on August 25th, 1779, as a member of the ancient Scottish Barclay clan, the son of Robert Sr. and Sarah Ann Alardis, he was born the year after his parents' marriage and had several brothers and sisters. His father was also a noted pedestrian who once walked from Uri to London, a distance of 510 miles, or 820 kilometers, in the span of 10 days. Captain Roberts started competing in 1801 at the age of 22, when he walked 110 miles, or 177 kilometers, in 19 hours and 27 minutes in a muddy park. That sounds difficult. Yeah. The mud would not be ideal. No. His most famous walk started on June 1st, 1809 at Newmarket Heath near Cambridge and ended on July 12th, 1809, during which he walked one mile or 1.6 kilometers over the course of 1,000 continuous hours in order to win a wager of 1,000 guineas, which in 2017 would be around $49,000. 2017? Yeah. Okay. The event caught the attention of the Times, and the following was written in the July 14th, 1809 edition. Keep in mind, he started June 1st and ended on July 12th. How? Quote, The gentleman on Wednesday completed his arduous pedestrian undertaking to walk a thousand miles in a thousand successive hours, at the rate of a mile in each and every hour. He had until 4 o'clock p.m. to finish his task, but he performed his last mile in the quarter of an hour after three, with perfect ease and great spirit, amidst an immense concourse of spectators. The influx of company had so much increased on Sunday that it was recommended that the ground should be roped in. To this, Captain Barclay at first objected, but the crowd became so great on Monday, and he had experienced so much interruption, that he was at last prevailed upon to allow this precaution to be taken. For the last two days, he appeared in higher spirits, and performed his walk with apparently more ease, and in shorter time than he had done for some days before. With the change of the weather, he had thrown off his loose great coat, which he wore during the rainy period, and on Wednesday performed in a flannel jacket. He also put on shoes thicker than any which he had used in the earlier part of his performance. He said that during the first night after his walk, he would have himself awoke twice or thrice to avoid the danger of a too sudden transition from almost constant exertion to a state of long repose. Interesting. 
100 to 1, and indeed any odds whatever, were offered on Wednesday, but so strong was the confidence in his success that no bets could be obtained. The multitude of people who resorted to the scene of action in the course of the concluding days was unprecedented. Not a bed could be procured on Tuesday night at Newmarket, Cambridge, or any of the towns and villages in the vicinity, and every horse and every species of vehicle was engaged. Among the nobility and gentry who witnessed the conclusion of this extraordinary feat were the Dukes of Argyle and St. Albans, Earls Grosvenor, Bessborough and Jersey, Lords Folly and Somerville, Sir John Lode, Sir F. Standish, etc., etc. Captain Barclay had a large sum depending upon his undertaking. The aggregate of the bets is supposed to amount to 100,000 pounds. Then. Then. Holy smokes. He commenced his feat on the 1st of June. End quote. Captain Robert was 29 at the time of his greatest pedestrian walk ever, and during the course of the walk, which took him 42 days, around 10,000 people had assembled to watch him. Not only that, but because of side bets that had been made, he actually walked away with around 16,000 pounds, which today would be around 902,000 pounds which equated to around 320 years' worth of income for the working-class event attendees. I can't... And this is this is him walking. Yeah, he's just walking. I don't get it. I truly don't get it. This has been... It. I can see why you went down a rabbit hole. Yeah. The total what? amount that was betted during the course of his walk was 100,000 pounds or around 5.6 million pounds today. For a man walking for a little over a month. Yeah. What the heck? <laughs> I can't even, like, like what is the... How, when you say that people, like, watch him, is he just, like, pacing? Is there, like, a track? So he walked a predetermined track in this Newmarket Heath. So he was just making laps around this predetermined path. And that's why so many people were like stationed around the track that he was walking on to watch him. That's just insane. He passed away at the age of 74 on May 8th, 1854. Since Captain Roberts' 1,000 mile walk, many pedestrians attempted to recreate or even exceed the feat themselves. One of them was a man named George Wilson. George Wilson was born on June 24, 1766, in Newcastle, as one of six children belonging to Robert Wilson and his wife, Mary Finlay. George went on to marry his cousin, no, with whom he fathered five children. Gross. During his life, he worked a number of different jobs, first starting as a cobbler's apprentice under his uncle John Bell, whose daughter he married. So he's his uncle and his father-in-law. Gross. Yeah. He worked this job for seven years before working as a pawnbroker for his mother at the age of 21. After attempting to start his own business, which failed after two years, he went back to pawnbroking for nine years at his own store. 
Following this, he became a draper in hosier and had to make trips to London around six times a year for supplies. The journey was around 522 miles, or 840 kilometers, and he would always walk it. Okay, so that's kind of what got him into it. Mm -hmm. During the time he was working as a draper in hosier, he also worked as a tax collector, which required him to walk anywhere from 50 to 60 miles, or 81 to 97 kilometers, each day. Just going to people's houses and demanding taxes? Yep. What a horrible job. Yep. By 1805, he turned the Draper and Hosier business management over to his wife and children and took up the sale of maps and travel guides full-time as he traveled around Britain. I this He really is a jack-of-all-trades at this point. Oh, yes. Five years later, in 1810, he started selling pamphlets in Kent, which at times required him to walk 40 miles or 64 kilometers a day. As you can probably guess, there wasn't a whole lot of money to be made selling pamphlets, maps, and travel guides, and just four years later in 1814, George found himself in debtor's prison after he was unable to pay his Uncle John 20 pounds, or around uh, a little over 1,100 pounds today. Dang. It was while he was incarcerated that he took up competitive pedestrianism, earning three pounds, one shilling, or about 159 pounds today, by walking 50 miles in the prison yards in just under 12 hours. Funny. Following his release, he took up competitive walking full-time and sold books in order to make ends meet. I. This guy just does what it all. Kind of, what kind of books? Like, I don't I don't know. The Bible? I don't know. He's <laughs> just carrying around a bunch of books as he's walking everywhere. Yeah. August 30th, 1814 was his first competitive walk outside of prison, during which he walked 96 miles, or 155 kilometers, in just under 24 hours, after which he likely earned around 100 pounds, or around 5,600 pounds today. Crazy. A little over a year later, on September 11th, 1815, George, who at this point was 50 years old, attempted his longest walk to date, 1,000 miles, or 1,609 kilometers, around Blackheath in 20 days. Jeez. His earnings were to be 100 pounds, or at this point, around 6,200 pounds which were going to be collected from the citizens of Woolwich. Well, he's he knows how to collect money at this point, so... Yeah, yep. He could do it. <laughs> yep. Alms for the poor, a.k.a. me. Every day, he walked 50 miles, or 80.5 kilometers, making his average 4 miles per hour slash 6 kilometers per hour. The local magistrate forbade him from walking on the Sabbath, a.k.a. Sunday, so he had to walk outside their jurisdiction on the two Sundays he did walk. <gasps> Back to prison. Oh, what a scamp. But those, but those books burned in his hands after that. Oh, man. <laughs> By the ninth day of his 20-day walk, newspapers started writing about it, and a crowd of around 7,000 people gathered. How? Why? What? The fact that he was 50 years old and fairly small at just 5 feet 4 inches and 121 pounds 
definitely increase the appeal. Look at this short man walking around. Well, because you can, people were making all these bets. Is he going to make yeah. it? Is he not going to make it? Well, he's old. He's not going to make it, you know. Yeah. Because 50 at that time, it was, you know, our times like 65, 70. 80. Yeah. It was old. Yeah. The next day, so day oh, 10, man. the news coverage had made his trek so popular that it was starting to impede his progress. The yeah. dust that was being kicked up by spectators affected his breathing, not to mention several angry bettors attempted to attack him. Oh, sabotage. Yep. It's estimated that the wagers on his success or failure were in the range of 5,000 pounds, or around 311,000 pounds today. That's unsettling. As a result, George was protected by men carrying bludgeons, staves, and bayonets. Stop it. It gets better, Maddie. Oh my god. By the 11th day, the Times was reporting that his walk was greater than that of Captain Barclay's, which had taken place six years earlier, because he was attempting to walk the same distance in half the time. Okay, but like, keep Barclay's name out your mouth, you know? Yeah. Come on. Dubbed the Blackheath Pedestrian, <laughs> the number of people who came out to watch him continued to swell to the tens of thousands. As you can imagine, with that many people in one place, ensuring there was an adequate amount of food and drinks available was a bit of an issue. Yeah, especially since I'm assuming a lot of these places were small towns, yep. rural areas. Yep. Yep. Cool. So booths were erected around the heath, making the route start to look like a county fair. Oh my goodness. Beer and spirits were available, along with entertainers such as fire eaters, rope walkers, ballad singers, and acrobats. All because somebody is walking in a predetermined circle of sorts. Additionally, dog fights and pony races were also set up nearby. Stop it. Stop. This isn't even the best part yet, Maddie. Oh my god. <laughs> As for other types of entertainment, according to a report by George's lawyer, quote, brothels were brought in from London to the spot, and drunkenness and debauchery were rife upon every part of Blackheath. At night, the neighborhood was assailed by the shouts of intoxication and the families in the vicinity disturbed by every species of riot and confusion, end quote. I mean, that makes sense. Once you start, once there are large crowds, especially like tourists, and you start adding alcohol and more gambling, it just kind of becomes a free-for-all over time. Snowballs from there. Yeah, because if you think about it, like, think of, like, a long-term fair, how chaotic mm -hmm. that could get over time. It didn't take long for the authorities to put the kibosh on the sale of liquor, and by the 12th day of George's trek, all of the stalls that had been selling it were gone. That's so funny. It's only been 12 days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They brought sex workers in on, like, day 11 That's... from London. Okay. On the 13th day, which was a Saturday, George was told that a warrant was issued for his arrest, 
but that he wasn't going to be taken in thanks to a sympathetic clerk of the magistrate who assured the magistrate that George would not walk at Blackheath on Sunday. Remember, he can't walk on the Sabbath. Oh, yeah. Oh, jeez. Instead, George was taken to nearby Peckham, Surrey, to complete day 14 of his walk so he wouldn't walk on the Sabbath. Thanks to the ground being a muddy mess after a particularly heavy rain came through, he had to be taken to Beckenham, Kent instead to finish his 50 miles for the day. Continuing rain caused further delays, and by the time midnight rolled around, giving him six hours remaining in the 24-hour period, he had still only completed 32 of the 50 miles that he had set out to walk for the day. That's not good. The odds were 10 to 1 that he wouldn't be able to make up the time. But at 5.30 a.m., with just 30 minutes to spare, he completed his 50th mile for the day. I hate this so much. Why am I stressed out about somebody walking? I know. (laughs) What's happening? I know. (laughs) You can see why I went down the rabbit hole. We're only on page 5 of my notes. By day 15, he completed his 750th mile, which was a huge accomplishment considering he was now 75% done with his attempt. Yeah, my God. Then on September 26th, 1815, just a mile into his walk on the 16th day, George was told that the constables had been given an arrest warrant for disturbing the peace. Oh, no. The decision to arrest him worked swimmingly in dispersing the large crowd of onlookers. During his hearing on October 5th, George was acquitted of all charges, but that didn't change the fact that he still lost the challenge, not to mention the money. Yeah. Still, the London Stock Exchange took up a collection for him so he could still receive the 100 pounds, or 6,200 pounds today, he was originally promised and they managed to raise the money within the span of a couple hours. Jeez. I love that the stock exchange is doing this. Yeah, they're like, we believe in you, George. What? Here's some money. Sorry, you got arrested. Here's the money. Yeah. Got arrested for walking. What? George attempted the feat again and was able to complete 1,000 miles in 18 days in Hull on November 2nd, 1822, at the age of 56. Jeez, he was practically a dinosaur at that point. Yep. (laughs) That's so funny to think about. 56 is so young. (laughs) Yeah. But back then, it's like, you're just walking your way to the grave, George. Just walking your way to the grave. Uh, Especially after that, like, lifetime of walking. You know? Mm Mm-hmm. It wasn't just men who competed. Women Uh also took part in pedestrianism. One of the more famous ones was a woman named Emma Sharp. Emma, who was born in Bradford in 1832, recreated Captain Barclay's trek of a thousand miles in a thousand hours. She was 32 years old when she started out on September 17th, 1864, wearing male clothing and a straw hat with, quote, feminine ornaments, end quote. Funny. And she finished the challenge on October 29th, 1864. Emma would rest at the Quarry Gap pub in Bradford when she wasn't walking two-mile stints every 90 minutes. She completed 14,600 laps 
of 120 yards over the span of a thousand hours. She won over 500 pounds, or around 44,400 pounds today, and used the money she earned to start a rug making business in Perseverance Works in Leisterdyke. I'm going to go with it. Leisterdyke. <laughs> Reportedly, over the course of her walk, her food was drugged, and several people tried to trip her so she couldn't finish. That makes sense. People suck. The last two days of her trek, she carried a pistol with her so she could protect herself, finishing her walk on a day that was rainy and wet. Jeez. Well, I mean. Yeah, no, like, it's, I'm not surprised. Mm-hmm. But it's, it still sucks that that even yeah. was a thing. Yeah. Another famous female pedestrian was a woman named Ada Nyman Anderson. Ada was born in London on February 10th, 1843, and not much is really known regarding her childhood. Makes sense. She left home at the age of 16 to join a theater company Ah. and was married five years later. During the course of her life, she stated that she had worked as a singer, a clown, which is terrifying, theater proprietress, and an actress. That all checks out with her decision to run away from home. Yep. Prior to her husband's death in 1877, the pair had managed a theater in Cardiff, and following the loss of her husband at the age of 34, she was left almost penniless. Ada took up race walking that same year in 1877, after meeting noted pedestrian William Gale in Cardiff, who went on to train her in not only pedestrianism, but in sleep deprivation as well. What? Yep. That escalated quickly. I mean, I suppose they they go hand in hand, but... Yep. I hate it. Yeah. <laughs> hey, lady, want to learn how to walk and never sleep again? <laughs> yes, please. Around six weeks after she started her training, she made her debut in Newport, Wales in September of that year. She walked 1,000 half miles, so around 805 kilometers total, mm-hmm. in 1,000 half hours and rested only 20 minutes at one time throughout the entire three-week trek. I hate that. A number of days, she was forced to walk with an umbrella and a lamp due to the heavy rain, but that didn't prevent her from finishing. Ada and William competed in another event later in 1877 in Plymouth, in which they attempted to break Captain Barclay's record of 1,000 miles, or 1,600 kilometers in in 1,000 hours. Okay. Ada not only broke the distance record by 250 miles, since she would walk her 1.25 miles at the start of every hour, Mm -hmm. but she was also able to finish with shorter rest periods compared to Barclay, who would do two consecutive miles at a time. Following this achievement, Ada was known in the press as the champion lady walker of the world. Ooh, what a title. Fancy. Good on you, Ada. As you can imagine, pedestrianism wasn't just a popular sport in the United Kingdom. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because I've often struggled with gut health and proper nutrition, which made me wonder what sort of vitamins and minerals I may be missing that my body really needs. With one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, 
probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. All the things. I drink my AG1 right away in the morning as a great way to get my day started. As someone who suffers from food allergies, I appreciate the fact that it's so lifestyle friendly, whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. Not only that, but the subscription comes with a year's supply of vitamin D, which is so important, especially in Minnesota where I'm from, where we don't get as much sunlight. For less than $3 a day, you can invest in your health. That's cheaper than a daily coffee habit. If you don't want to take my word for it, check out the over 7,000 five-star reviews that Athletic Greens has received. It's not just about the fact that I'm taking better care of my body. Athletic Greens is a climate-neutral certified company that gives back as well. For every purchase they receive, they donate to organizations that help supply nutritious foods to children in need, including No Kid Hungry. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com emerging. Again, that is athleticgreens.com E-M-E-R-G-I-N-G to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. It also became a popular American pastime in the 1870s and 1880s. What? In the words of author Matthew Algio, quote, In the decades after the Civil War, there was mass urbanization in the United States, with millions of people moving into the cities. And there wasn't much for them to do in their free time. So pedestrianism, or competitive walking matches, filled a void for people. It became quite popular quite quickly, end quote. Interesting. It also spread to Canada and as far away as Australia. Crazily enough, the people competing would walk around 600 miles in six days and be on the track for around 21 hours a day with a nap of maybe three hours a day. No, that sounds awful. Yeah, I hate it. One of the most famous pedestrians in America was Edward Payson Weston. Born March 15, 1839 in Providence, Rhode Island, he was the son of a teacher father and a writer mother. In his teen years, he published books he'd written about his father's experiences during the California Gold Rush and then the Azores. Azores? I don't know how you say it. And he published a novel his mother had written in 1859 when he was 20. Nice. His first foray into pedestrianism was on February 22, 1861, when he walked 478 miles, or 769 kilometers, from Boston, Massachusetts to Washington, D.C., during the span of 10 days and 10 hours, arriving in the capital on March 4th. That's bananas. During this trek, he walked Jeez. through snow rain, and mud, not to mention he fell several times along the route. That sucks. Right? <laughs> He's just trying to do this and you keep falling and it's cold and then it's wet and then sticky, mucky. Muddy. 
Ugh. The longest bout of uninterrupted sleep he experienced during the whole 10 days was six hours, and he often ate while he was walking. He arrived in Washington at 5 p.m. and was feeling well enough to attend Abraham Lincoln's inaugural ball. Stop it. Edward was 22 at the time. That's really funny. I wonder if he danced. (laughs) He must have. (laughs) Probably. Interestingly, Edward wouldn't have done it at all had he not lost a wager regarding the 1860 presidential election. What? Having gambled against Lincoln and lost, he was tasked with walking to see the inauguration. That's amazing. Do you want to know what his prize was? A handshake from Abraham Lincoln. Well, that was one of them. It was a bag of peanuts. He did all of that for a bag of peanuts. Apparently. He also received tons of newspaper coverage, not to mention a congratulatory handshake from President Lincoln. That's really funny. I did not predict that. I was joking, and it happened. It happened. (laughs) As a result of his losing bet, he found that the walk inspired him to continue as a pedestrian. Six years later, in 1867, Edward traveled from Portland, Maine, to Chicago, Illinois, covering a distance of 1,200 miles, or 1,900 kilometers, in the course of 26 days, earning him a prize of $10,000, or around $200,000 today. Dang. He received a number of death threats from people who'd bet against him, and was even once physically attacked. Yeah, this is just, it's so much for walking. (laughs) I just keep thinking, like, the guy who had private security walking around. Yeah. Like, yeah. Walking. Yep. Okay. Edward would give lectures to large crowds of people on the health benefits of walking, both as he was walking and afterwards. Funny. Sponsored by walking. (laughs) Sponsored by walking. He continued his walking career over the next couple decades, gaining and holding a number of long-distance endurance records. In 1874, at the age of 35, he became the first person in the world to walk 500 miles in six days in Newark, New Jersey. There's the song. There it is. Yeah. There should be. The following year, he won the first six-day race in history that was held in New York City in P.T. Barnum's Hippodrome. That's just all ridiculous. A hippodrome. After this, he spent eight years competing around Europe. In his first race against England's race walking champion, which consisted of a 24 hour, 115 mile ultra marathon, his victory came under question after he later admitted that he'd been chewing coca leaves during the bulk of the race. <sighs> Not caffeine. What are coca leaves, you may ask? Just the plant that cocaine comes from. Incredible. He was doping. He was doping. (laughs) He was doping. (laughs) Oh, no. He won the coveted Astley belt at the age of 40 in 1879 after defeating British champion Blower Brown in a 550-mile, 890-kilometer match that he finished in 141 hours and 44 minutes. I hate all of it. He went on to compete in a number of other pedestrian events until he was severely injured at the age of 88 in New York City 
when he was hit by a taxi. Why was he still competing at 88? I don't I don't think he was still competing at that time. I think he was just kind of out. Maybe he was just walking and got hit by a taxi. <laughs> he was walking regularly, not competitively. Going to get a bagel and got hit. Yep. He never walked again. Oh, no. Now you feel like an asshole. <laughs> I don't. That's the problem. I really don't. And he died two years later in his sleep at his home in Brooklyn on May 12th, 1929, at the age of 90. Get this. His pedestrianism career spanned 52 years, from 1861 to 1913. Jeez. As you can imagine, it wasn't long at all before international pedestrian events started taking place such as events that were held at Madison Square Garden in New York City in the 1870s and 1880s. I don't know why, but my first thought was like, <laughs> international pedestrian races in Brazil. <laughs> like in the Rio de Janeiro. Argentina. And it wasn't just the draw of the walkers. It was the extravagance of it all. There were food vendors selling roasted chestnuts and pickled eggs. There was beer brass bands, not to mention for the price of a dollar, or around $30 today, you could be seated amongst celebrities like Mark Twain, and even the tiny circus celebrity of the day known as General Tom Thumb. I, d I can't. You were sitting and watching? So it's just track and field. It's slow. It's slower track and field. Yep. With pickled eggs. You're eating a hot pickled egg. Sitting next to Mark Twain, watching someone walk. Yep. Yeah, that checks out. Keep in mind, up until this point, the majority of pedestrian events were solo ventures. So the draw of having multiple athletes competing against one another in an indoor arena was huge. Not only that, but this was at the height of industrialization, where people would be working early morning or overnight shifts. And because these events took place for six consecutive 24-hour days, they would be able to attend at an affordable price anytime, like whenever they got off work, because it was going 24-7 or 24-6, yeah. I guess. Can't do it on Sundays. Did this start on the, uh, did this create the Olympics? No. no. But there is still kind of like a race walking event in the Olympics. I know. I, I, I do know that part. For the Summer Olympics, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the Winter Olympics. The Everybody Winter would Olympics. fall. Everybody <laughs> falls. <laughs> That'd be the best event to watch ever. Not only that, but there was no real bar to prevent anyone from participating as a contestant. You just had to be able and willing to walk. That's it. And even though most of us would consider the sport boring as hell to watch, you have to admit that the appeal is there. Watching mm -hmm. someone accomplish something that, by all rights, should be physically impossible. Yeah, and I—I I mean, you have to think about it too. Like, what kind—they're just wearing regular clothes too. Like, it's not like. Well, in the arena ones, they were wearing like the tank top, like the old timey tank tops. Oh, they, they were, were wearing like. They were more aerodynamic. They were wearing boxer shorts so like the ones that actual like mm -hmm. like fighting boxers would wear some of them wore pants okay i mean there yeah, were... in the early days they were probably still wearing like 
Yeah, they were suits. walking in suits. Mm-hmm. Funny. In addition to famous pedestrians like Edward Weston, you'd see people like Dan O'Leary, who was an Irish immigrant from Chicago, or Frank Hart, who was a Haitian immigrant who entered a race just for fun and was so good at it that he became known as the, consider the time, this is racist, I don't agree with it, the Negro Wonder, which at the time was an outstanding achievement, being able to be a person of color in a predominantly white sport. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then they would go into the future <laughs> and realize that uh, color doesn't matter with track and field. Yeah. Or in general. You yeah. Know? Frank Hart ended up being from Boston, and he was like one of the most popular athletes in Boston for a really long time. I bet you he probably received a good number of death threats and issues too. I'm sure he did. I'm glad he was popular, though. Good for him. Now, this next part is really funny, and there's a reason I included it, because it was hilarious. Okay. So pedestrians, as you've probably noticed, were given clever monikers. Mm-hmm. And even had their own unique styles of walking. <laughs> Edward Weston was known as the Wily Wobbler. Okay. And Dan O'Leary was famous for pumping his arms like pistons in a car while holding a cob of corn in each hand, which he believed helped absorb his sweat. Gross. Mm-hmm. I hate that. What a waste of corn. What a waste of corn. An example of an event was the one that took place on September 21st, 1879 at Madison Square Garden in front of 10,000 spectators. 13 men had gathered to compete in the fifth annual Great Six Days Race, that was coordinated by Sir John Astley. Each contestant was required to walk around the indoor track for six days in a row until they had completed at least 450 miles, or 724 kilometers. Mm -hmm. At this point, there was big money to be had if you won one of these races. Whoever traveled the farthest during the six days would win $25,000, or around $680,000 today, or 494,000 pounds. Jeez. Not to mention a solid silver belt with long-distance champion of the world engraved on it. (laughs) That's the real prize. That's the real prize. Mm -hmm. Participants in these races would be scrutinized by the crowd as kind of like how people look at racehorses today, you know. Right. Which one looks the best? Mm Mm-hmm. Each time one of the men approached the starting line to complete a lap, the spectators would literally crowd it to the point that they would almost break down the barrier or crush themselves. hate that. Mm -hmm. Competitors would often abuse performance enhancers, such as drink (laughs) champagne or chew on coca leaves, a.k.a. cocaine. But that didn't seem to matter to sponsors. (laughs) That's right. Some of these athletes were the first to ever receive corporate sponsorships in sports. That's amazing. Selling products such as newspapers, salt, and the agricultural industry. I bet I know who who was sponsored by the agricultural industry. (laughs) (laughs) Good old Dan O'Leary. I love me some corn. Mr. Corncob himself. When I'm not growing corn, I'm holding it to absorb my sweat. (laughs) 
Don't Corn. use salted butter. Corn, get some, grow some. <laughs> Walk with it. <laughs> the walking snack. <laughs> Pedestrians became the subjects of the first trading cards that appeared on packs of cigarettes. I hate that. <laughs> I hate it so much. This is, yeah, this is crazy. The problem with using champagne as a stimulant is the fact that most of the men who drank it would consume it by the bottle. Yeah, and they're sleep-deprived and probably malnourished. Yeah. Yep. I can see where the wobbler moniker came from. Yeah, no shit. I'm the wily wobbler. (laughs) As with any sport, you have people who exhibit uh, diva-ish behaviors. No. Right. (laughs) Not walkers. One competitor asked to have jars of water brought in from a town 200 miles away because that's what he had drunk during his training. This is where, like, all of our issues come from. Bottled water. (laughs) (laughs) Bad sponsors. Drugs. (laughs) Drug, like, doping. Yeah. Sports. Rivalries rose up, such as with Dan O'Leary and a pedestrian named John Hughes. Uh Uh-oh. John boasted that he could easily beat Dan if he could afford to travel to Britain to compete against him. Smack talk across country lines. Dan, who at that point had made quite a bit of money as a champion pedestrian, responded, quote, I'll build you a bridge, end quote. I like that. I do too. That's a good one. Build you a bridge to walk over it so I can walk all over you. Ah, I'll build you a bridge. Goddamn. As I mentioned, scandal was rife in pedestrianism, given how many ways you could place bets on a match. Edward Weston, who I've mentioned a few times, claimed that he used the coca leaves under the advice of his doctor when he was competing. While an Australian pedestrian named Billy McDonald was banned from competing altogether for three months when he was caught throwing a match. Oh. Mm -hmm. Not good. It wasn't uncommon for competitors to drop out of races early. Some people wouldn't be able to handle the rigorous demand. Makes sense. That makes sense. No sleep. Consistent walking. People trying to kill you. Yeah. (laughs) Cocaine. Champagne, you know, living the dream. Fatigue, as you can imagine, was common. And at the race I mentioned at Madison Square Garden, one of the participants even left his tent where they would eat, sleep, and go to the bathroom on the fifth day of the race, quote, in convulsions, end quote. Oh. Yeah. Not good. The results of these events were so huge that they would make front-page news following their completion. And this wasn't even the biggest event they could compete in. The 52-day self-transcendence 3,100-mile race required participants to walk 60 miles a day just to stay on track. I hate that. Where's that? Where was that? I don't know. I think it was in Britain. I don't know. Gross. Pubs in Britain and bars in the U.S. would host their own pedestrian events to drum up business. 
not to mention keep the gambling that took place alive and well. In the champagne business. In the champagne business, popping those bottles. And it wasn't just betting on who would win. You could bet on who would drop out first, who would reach 100 miles in a race, etc., etc. Yeah, that checks out. By March of 1881, interest in pedestrianism started to wane as competitors started to drop off. The Irish Dan O'Leary retired to start his own belt, uniquely named as the O'Leary Belt, which only drew, as the New York Times described them, quote, six miserable wretches, end quote. Oh, no! To compete to a small crowd that seemed lackluster in their enthusiasm at best. Wow, so they were big fans of his. Super big. Truly. Hated agriculture, allegedly. Hated agriculture and the Irish. The the anti-corn establishment. (laughs) (laughs) The acers, as we call them today. (laughs) Anti-corn. When John Hughes and Frank Hart also retired, it basically killed all interest in the sport. The New York Times went on to report of the event following John and Frank's bowing out, quote, This fact points to an inevitable conclusion, that the people are at length awakening to the fact that walking matches, if they are not hippodromes, or circuses, in the worst sense of the word, are brutal exhibitions at best, and ought not to be tolerated in a civilized community, end quote. Ah, so now it's no longer an affluent sport. Yes. Got it. The fact of the matter was that these races basically capitalized on the pain and exhaustion that these athletes endured just for fame and fortune. For funsies. For funsies. With almost no sleep, champagne and cocaine use just to stay awake, not to mention frequent injuries on the track and from angry spectators attempting to fix the race, by the time participants actually finished, they were basically exhausted zombies. Yeah. And probably had a really hard time normalizing their circadian rhythms after. Yeah. The craze known as pedestrianism met its eventual demise around 1885 with the invention and mass production of the safety bicycle, which was invented by John Starley, which at the time were comparable to what we would consider to be a bike today, not those ones with the giant front wheel known as penny farthings. (laughs) the tiny tiny little ones in the back yep those are penny farthings i thought that was amazing yeah i didn't i don't think i've ever known the actual name yeah i didn't know what they were called and i was not disappointed no it's a good name the safety bike allowed you to travel quickly without having to walk for six hours to get where you wanted to go and it wasn't long before interest moved almost overnight from pedestrianism to bicycle racing. Yeah, that checks out. It's the newest vehicle. Mm-hmm. So that is the, the interesting history of how um, competitive walking kind of went off the rails a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Insane. I had no idea. I was not disappointed in my choice. Oh my god. As soon as I read the thing about the brothels, I was like, oh man here we go here we go buckle up buttercup we're in for a ride (laughs) if you want a playlist of all our episodes on youtube 
Click the link in our show notes or in our link tree and subscribe today for not only a list of our full catalog, but a separate list as well, just of our Can You Crack the Crampboard segments. So, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of the Victorian era? Arsenic wallpaper? The fear of being buried alive? Tattoos? No? Well, perhaps it's time we change that. I'm Marissa, host of the Victorian Variety Show podcast. In each episode, I discuss an aspect of life during the Victorian era that you may not have heard about before. But once you do, you may never view this period of history quite the same way ever again. So join me as I explore the lesser-known side of Victorian history. Check out the Victorian Variety Show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, iHeart, or wherever you get your podcasts, if you dare. And this week's podcast plug is the Victorian Variety Show by our friend Marissa, who will be in an upcoming episode of Can You Crack the Cramp Word? Nice. Every couple weeks, she discusses a different aspect of Victorian life, from morning practices to fashion to the morbid fascination with freak shows, for example. I personally love her show, and when I was interviewing her for the Cramp Word segment, we discussed doing a collaboration in the future, so stay tuned for that. I highly encourage you to check out her show, and we will have a link in the show notes. On that note, what is something good you'd like to share? Oh boy, what is something good I'd like to share? We're going to be outside for my birthday this weekend, mm-hmm. so hopefully it should be pretty nice out. We'll see. We'll see how it goes, but we're going to try to rent a pontoon. I don't know if that'll be possible or not, but I'm kind of looking forward to a relaxing weekend, nice and quiet. We get to have my fiancé's daughter this weekend and actually give her some of her presents belatedly and their uh-huh. pockets, and they're really cool. So I'm really excited to share that nice. with her. So I think that'll be my good thing is seeing her and hanging out because she's always a delight. Cool. What about you? What's one good thing? I had it. I had thought of one before we started recording, and now I forgot it. Well, I don't know if it's a good thing or not, but I... (laughs) Amazing. I signed up to do a 5K on October 1st. Oh, dang. Okay. But I'm going to be walking it. Competitively? I don't run. I'm going to competitively walk it. Maybe I'll hold some corn cobs. Maybe I'll see if it works. I mean, I hear it's great for the absorption of sweat. I mean, I might as well try it at this point. Maybe DeKalb will sponsor you. Green Giant. Brought to you by the Giantly Green Giant. <laughs> or is it Del Monte? <laughs> Del Monte. I'll reach out to Blue Earth. The fine folks Just... at Blue Earth and be like, you want to sponsor my 5K? I'm gonna take I'm gonna take part in the Twin Cities Marathon. 5K okay. style. Now that I just geolocated myself on a day in the future. But it's fine. Good luck finding me in a crowd. Right. Where's Waldo? Just change your hair color beforehand. Good luck finding me. I'm a ninja. <laughs> On that note, let's shut it up. Okay. 
A great way to support the show if you'd like to help us out, but can't do so financially, which we get. I mean, you already bought us birthday presents, so, I mean, you can't give us any more money. Nope. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Good Pods, or you can leave a rating on Spotify. This week's review is a little bit different. It was a comment on one of our episodes on our YouTube channel. Ooh. So it's a review on an episode from our good friend Tarma, who listens all the time. She interacts with me a lot on Twitter and on Instagram. And this is about the Bloody Benders episode that we did. Oof. For our dad's birthday. <laughs> Oof. Yep, I remember that. She says, wonderful episode. I really enjoyed it. I really appreciate the level of research that goes into each of the episodes. Being a rabid history fan and a connoisseur of true crime, I do appreciate facts speculation. When expressed clearly as such, is fine. It's interesting to hear someone else's thoughts on a subject, and it is also something else I really appreciate about this podcast. You both mesh very well together, leavening the dark with some lighthearted moments so it's balanced equally between the two and makes it both informative and enjoyable. Well done. I just remember the death grass comments. Oh, thanks. Yeah, that was some spicy grass. Spicy it was grass. spicy death grass. She continues, I'm well acquainted with this bloody clan. I've read true crime books that included this case, and it was wonderful to revisit this one since it is very mysterious as well as shocking at how many unfortunate fell prey to the Bender family. It is quite a head-scratcher, for sure. It was all too easy for someone to go missing in those days. Bandits, encounters with native tribes, sickness, or even dying on the trail from disease or starvation were risks. Mm -hmm. I was also impressed with the quality of the research. I found myself either nodding or saying yes out loud numerous times since it tallied with my knowledge of the subject. And I also yes. liked that the sources you used for your research were stated before the episode began. Another plus. I appreciate the amount of detail and gory details in this episode as well. I feel that if you're doing history in any way, shape, or form that deals with war or crime or other gruesome subjects, I want to hear the details, no matter how nasty. I like studying the darker side of history, and I probably already know about it, and I don't shy away from dark <laughs> subjects. I appreciate that this podcast doesn't either. People in the Victorian era had very different views on death. For them, it was part of everyday life since it was around pretty much every corner. No family escaped having children, relatives, or parents dying in days past. Death was handled at home by the family, so it was up close and personal. So their perspective on it would be very different from our modern view. I've read stories where people have kept skulls, different body parts, even books bound in human skin, and people didn't bat an eyelash. Death does seem to take on quite a different perspective when it's basically staring at you right in the face from the time you're born. And she's like, sorry about the digression. I get into my history a bit too deeply sometimes. <laughs> nice. Another book that deals with the bloody benders and a particular favorite of mine is Little Slaughterhouse on the Prairie by Harold Schechter, which goes into quite gory detail about the case, and I found to be a fascinating read. Honestly, any book by Harold Schechter is a fabulous read, in my opinion. I have read that. I agree. He is a fantastic author, and I love anything I've read by him. Nice. And then to close out her review, wonderful podcast. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you. That was very nice. Thank you, Tarma. You're wonderful. If you're interested in ad-free content, consider supporting us with a one-time donation either over on Buy Me a Coffee or our Venmo page. 
both of which are in our link tree and in the show notes. If you'd like early ad-free content, not to mention some bonus material, become a member of our Patreon today for as low as a dollar a month. And just in time for our birthdays. This week, they're going to be having 30% off all the merch in our store at TeePublic. Oh, yeah. Nice. August 10th through the 14th. I even went in and relaunched all of our birthday merch from last year as well. Nice. You can go buy a Team Trampoline something or other. You could buy a Haters Gonna Hate something or other. I brought mm-hmm. back the Camel Core because I love the Camel Core. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember the other one that I brought back, but I'm sure it's great. <laughs> <laughs> it's wonderful. Check it out. Check it's it a out. Surprise. It's a surprise. It's fantabulous. Got something you want to say? Shoot us an email over at yieldcrimepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your story ideas, see any gifts you send our way, or if you just want to say hello. We're pretty friendly. Speaking of friendly, if you'd like to have real-time conversations with us, consider joining our Discord over at the Cultivate Network. You can chat with us over at the Old Crimers Cubby, or catch up with any of the other great creators that are part of the Cultivate family of podcasts. Just click the link in our show notes or over on our link tree to get started today. And on that note, as always, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Madison. And we'll see you next time with another tale as old as crime.